Welcome to Inner Bloom, a podcast about spirituality and intuitive empowerment where we help each other evolve and ascend through conscious community. I'm Alexa, a healer who utilizes EFT, also known as tapping, to help you process stuck emotions, release limiting beliefs, and reconnect with your inner child. I'm Ambrosia, a psychic medium and Arcturian channel, here to uplift and inspire you to see that you are capable of more than you know. Together, we empower people to live extraordinary lives. We do want to warn you, if you hang out with us long enough, you'll start to believe in yourself and realize that you're capable of anything. Enjoy Enjoy the the show. show. Hello, hello. Welcome back once again to Inner Bloom Podcast. I'm Alexa. I'm Ambrosia. Hi, everybody. And we are so excited to be here today with licensed EMDR therapist, Miss Heather Corley. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm excited to chat. We're excited too. Um, We're going to talk about attachment theory today, which is something that you specialize in. And we actually, you're coming to our next retreat in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah which we're very excited about. And actually that's how we found, that's how we like got to talking about you and what you do. And we were like, this is perfect for our podcast and our audience, Mm -hmm. our audience loves this. So would love if you would just give a little bit more of your background about, you know, maybe a little bit of your story and how you came to be doing what you're doing. Okay. I'll give you the the highlights, the bullet points. Um, But I am a licensed social worker, so I actually started out working for Department of Children and Families in Florida and kept seeing the same moms return to services over and over again for alcohol use disorders or substance use disorders. Um, And I would just like cry in the director's office and be like, how we've got to do better for these women than this. Um, so she's like, well, you should go, you know, get your master's and become a therapist and, and get it at another level. So that's what I did. And I worked for an outpatient rehab for a long time with women. And then I managed an inpatient rehab here in Greenville for about six years. And three years ago during the height of the pandemic was like, you know what? <laughs> I don't like being on call 24 seven. So I started my own private practice. Um, but through that journey, I figured out that most people's alcohol and other drug use is not because it's because of a lot of bigger things. And a lot of those bigger things are things like trauma or, um, not having safe families or, um, not having healthy behaviors modeled to them or enough support in the world. So that's kind of what I brought to this practice here, though. I don't usually don't usually see people with substance use disorders any longer. So that's kind of how I ended up here. Wow. What do you, what do you mostly see now? Um, well, I see a lot of women. Um, occasionally I'll get a, a man in here, but um, a lot of people with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So that means that they've had, um, they've had a stressful situation for an extended period of time. Mm. Um, so traditional post-traumatic stress disorder is like you get in a car accident or there's a house fire or you experience a sexual assault. 
complex means that they experience something probably throughout their lifespan. So oh, being wow. a victim of domestic violence, um, an incestual sexual relationship with, well, anyone in their family uh, for an extended period of time. And a lot of times these ladies are coming to me because they're in current relationships that are unhealthy. Um, so, and they come from all walks of life. I've got executive directors and professors and stay-at-home moms. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a great mix of ladies and the occasional man. I saw this because I know we're talking about attachment styles today. And I know that we're talking about relationships and how those pertain to being in the world. But I saw this thing on TikTok that was really interesting that basically said, I don't believe in soulmates. I believe in wound mates. And I believe that a person brings out the wound in you and it's represented and it shows you where you need to grow, but it also speak, feels familiar. Mm -hmm. And because it feels familiar, it seems like I just can't get enough of this person. There's just this connection. I just don't know why. Um, but the reality is, I think that, and, and I see this a lot in uh, my friends as well and my personal relationships too, is we pick these people that we're in relationships with, whether it's friendship or romantic relationships with, because they do remind of us of how we were brought up, how we were raised. Um, so I'd love for you to touch on that. If we could just like dive in. Sure. I love attachment style. I love this conversation. I do too. I'm obsessed with this stuff too, as well as like generational differences and the effects of that on attachment. That's a whole nother podcast, but oh my um, gosh, that's, I didn't even think about that. Oh yeah. Like, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So I guess the best place to start is that our brain is kind of um, built to protect us. Right. But our brain is also kind of an a-hole, right? So we, from the start in our, in our mother's womb, we start to store away memories and emotions and sensations that feel safe or unsafe to us. Mm. So that's all kind of stored in our limbic system. And our limbic system is what creates connection, biologically speaking. Um, I believe we have multiple soulmates too, spiritually speaking, but when it comes to like biology and meeting other people and instantly feeling that connection. Sometimes it is your limbic system recognizes something familiar in theirs and it just feels comfortable and you're drawn together. And I can't, I can never remember who did this study and one day I should look it up, but there's a study out there where they had a woman who was raised in a, an alcoholic and abusive home and they put her in a room with 20 men. One of them was an alcoholic. Guess which one she found? Of course. It was like two magnets. Um, and so it's called um, our mirroring neurons in our brain kind of seek each other out and stick together. And I think that's why a lot of women or people in relationships in general, are like I swore I would never be with an abusive man, but here I am. And it's because your brain feels comfortable. It doesn't know that it's not supposed to feel comfortable. It just says this feels right. Mm -hmm. And is it also like trying to fulfill something? Because I feel like a lot of these things can also be like, 
I don't know, we're attracted to people who maybe remind us of like our fathers or our mothers or, or whatever. And there's a part of us that thinks, okay, I can fix them this time or I can rectify this this time. Is it strictly about familiarity or is it is there also a part of us that like wants to be able to like complete the cycle? That's so, oh, such a complicated question. Um, so I think that the other way, and I love neurobiology, so I mean, there's a lot of brain references in this, but um, we all have an answer to a painful emotion. Our brain responds to pain in a certain way. Um, and that answer can sometimes be the person that tries to fix things or people or situations. Mm -hmm. It could be that you go, you withdraw and you isolate when you feel a painful emotion. It could be that you um, rage when you find, yeah. feel something painful. So like what you're describing is kind of like, this is a painful situation for me. So I'm going to try to fix it. That's my answer to this pain is to fix that thing to make me feel better. Right. Um, and it feels good to accomplish that. So a, your limbic system's like attracted to this other limbic system that's unhealthy, but your answer to pain and that discomfort is, well, I can fix him or her. I can do that. That's going to make me feel good. And then it just kind of blows up in your face. And so, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to know these things about yourself so that you can feel the discomfort of choosing something different and really alter the way that your brain sees other people. I would agree with that. I think that you can't change something that you don't see, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to, I mean, I've heard this countless times. I just don't know why I keep picking the same type of person, right? Mm -hmm. And um I think that the moment that we start to realize the pattern that's going on in our brain, it makes more sense how we can change it because then we can recognize mm -hmm. how the pattern that's happening outside of ourselves and what mm -hmm. we are choosing. Can we back up for a second, just for anyone who's tuning in, who maybe isn't like so familiar with attachment theory and can you like break it down a little bit? Like what is attachment theory and what yeah. are the different types of attachment? Yeah, I think that would be a good place to start. So, um, so attachment theory kind of is based off the fact that your parents are going to raise you in a, in a style that teaches you how to interact with other people in the future in different relationships. Um, so there are, we have anxious attachment, we have avoidant attachment, we have anxious avoidant attachment, and we have secure attachment. So each of those come from different ways that your parents raise you. Anxious attachment means I never really know who's going to show up to this party. Mom could be nice one day and just hell on wheels the next day. And it scares me. And so I constantly need to look for reassurance from the partners that I have or the friendships that I have. And I constantly, a lot of empaths have this. I constantly am scanning the room to see who is in the worst mood so I can make them feel better to make me feel better. Interesting. So that's anxious. Avoidant is when I, when I get attached to mom, she's going to turn around and hurt me. Mom's not safe. So the minute someone with an avoidant attachment style begins to feel big feelings for someone else, they back off. They self-sabotage. This isn't going to be safe. I'm going to get hurt. 
I'm going to avoid everything within this area um, so that I don't get hurt. And so those are the folks who, after month three of dating somebody, they ghost their partner. Mm-hmm. Oh. 100% <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also anxious avoidant, which is a mixture of the two, right? Oh, so yeah. it's like, I, yeah, worry, I was going to say, I feel like I'm both. <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah. It is a thing. I think I'm anxious avoidant too, which is fine. I'm anxious, anxious. So it's fine. I'm fine. Um, but, <laughs> but that, but that is basically like, I'm going to be so worried about this relationship and whether or not this person cares for me or likes me or needs me, or am I doing the right thing? Or why are they in a bad mood? And then the minute that person seems to relax with you, you withdraw. Like, this doesn't, okay, I, I'm good now. Um, and then the rarest one of all is secure attachment. I'm glad that is... that's rare because it makes me feel better because <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to attract a secure attachment being anxious avoidant, right? Like the likelihood of that is very unlikely. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Please continue. Well, well, have you ever read the book attached? No, it's a little newer. Um, I like it, how it describes anxious attachment and avoidant attachment, how they interact with each other in the world. Um, So that is the first part of that answer. But (laughs) the book does say that oftentimes we, the secure attachment is like a unicorn, finding someone like that is a unicorn and that often they don't understand the other attachment style. So it's very hard for them to have patience or understanding with that. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. And so I found it interesting because the book really helps you say, okay, I have anxious attachment disorder. This is or not disorder. Excuse me. Um, I have an anxious attachment. So I'm going to, now I know that this is how it shows up in me. So this is how I can interact in my relationships to change them. Mm. Um, and it does a good job of pointing that out. It has its faults, but it's a good book. If you have anxious attachment. <laughs> And it's um, attached. Mm-hmm, yeah. I don't know who wrote it. I used to have a copy in my office, but. That's okay. I'm going to look that up. It has a magnet on the front of it. It's red. <laughs> I think I've One seen this book, but I, I haven't mm-hmm. read it. Um, mm-hmm. But so basically it's saying it's possible to, but it's, it's just not as common, correct? To attract, to be someone who attracts secure while you're anxious avoidant or anxious avoidant right it's harder right they don't understand what your brain is doing because their parents were you know healthy consistent reliable not narcissistic not histrionic like just steady people so they don't understand why your brain's telling them telling you that if they don't call you back within two hours and they've left and they've they're done with you right and so you I didn't even think about it like that. Sorry, this, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, this is my husband, exactly. I, I really do think my husband is one of these unicorns for the mm, most part. I, really? Yeah, because mm-hmm. like the, for our whole relationship, I was, I've been anxious avoidant, and he's always like, I just don't understand what's going on here. Granted, he is literally the one of the most patient people I've ever met. Actually, it's more so kind of like stubborn patient it's kind of like no I'm going to like keep at this thing until it works like that's the type Mm -hmm. he is 
And I, if he were any less than he was, I mean, it, I wouldn't have had the space to grow into what I feel like is much more secure now. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like being with him for so long has healed a lot of that and given me that space to grow into that. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, but otherwise, I feel like, I guess this is, I, I guess what I'm saying is, it's not that you can never have a secure relationship if you're anxious avoidant, but it's more so, I think this is why people with anxious avoidant or an- anxious avoidant or anxious avoidant have maybe more relationships and more breakups and more ups and downs mm-hmm. because like you kind of have to like slide up the scale typically. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Or like, what's your perspective on that for somebody what? who wants? I think that's it? true. But let's also think about like our patterns throughout life. Like, I don't know about y'all, but from the ages of maybe 11 to 25, I was a total shit show. Right? Like, um, cause you're trying to figure out who you are and there's a lot of like experimenting and questioning and, you know, big emotions and even like learning how to like manage time and money and career. And then I mean, me too. (laughs) 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 Um, And then you get into your thirties and it's, you know, you're starting to finally get the hang of who you are. For me, the best decade so far has been 40. (laughs) Like I've never been more (laughs) self-assured. So I think that kind of contribute some to the ups and downs of that dating game Mm. or the relationships that we're in. Um, And then of course I'm a little biased about this, but I think if you find a good therapist who can help you explore these things and explore these patterns and how you react to this type of stuff, then you start to slowly evolve. And yes, you will find the person that is going to feel secure for you. But you're not going to find that until you work on you. Yeah, that's so true. That's so personally, true. I don't think you will. But. So with attachment styles, attachment theory, I heard not on TikTok, actually somewhere else, but I digress. Thank God. I, <laughs> I heard somewhere that um, <coughs> what they're discovering now in these attachment styles is through different studies is that, um, while we learn this at a young age, right. We learn, okay. If mom leaves the room, she's never coming back. Or if, mm. um, I don't know how to interact with mom because her moods constantly change, etc. We've also started to learn that we can undo that learning or repair mm-hmm. that relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Is this true? And can you talk a little bit about that? So when you say repair the relationship, do you mean like with your actual parent or with yourself? I mean both? with yourself, but I mean more like, so I have three kids, right? And I know nobody's, I, here's the thing. I think being a mom really changes your perspective because you understand that mm-hmm. nobody is perfect. And I think you have a different uh, empathy for your parents, Right. Because Mm -hmm. you have, I think growing up in your, at least in my twenties, I had this false sense of my mom should be this person. She should do that. And then you really start to realize she's just a person and she's a, she's not going to change and B, um, she's doing the best she can with the information she has. Yeah. So what I've heard through a different podcast, but what I heard was that, um, what they are discovering is that when you turn around and you say to your child, 
Hey, you know what? I messed up in that situation. I'm a person. I'm really sorry. That thing that I did was not okay. Mm-hmm. And I will try to do better in the future. Um, it actually repairs or changes the attachment um, that we may fall into instead of that anxious avoidant attachment. It, mm-hmm. We might go more into a secure attachment. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's absolutely true because I think in some way you're honoring your own inner child self by saying like, hey, you know what, kiddo, it's okay that you messed up mm-hmm. and it's okay for you to share this with someone else in a safe way. So in that sense, I can see why we would be healing ourselves. But repairing with your kids is like the best thing in the world, right? It's not about the argument. It's about the repair. It's not about the mistake. It's about how you come back at them and say, like, like you said, like, I'm not perfect. And I, I tell my daughter all the time, like, I'm still learning how to parent an eight-year-old because I've never done it before. And I'm going to make some big mistakes. Um, and she's always, well, depending on the mood, she's either very forgiving or brutally honest it's fine (laughs) um but but in doing that I'm teaching her I'm now modeling a different behavior for her Mm -hmm. um that so she's going to do better the next generation is always going to do a little bit better um I think that's why millennials and gen zers are each going to give life to people that's just totally different than before. Like my mom and dad would have never gone to therapy. They are hardcore boomers. Absolutely not. No way. You only do that if you like go psycho and lose your mind. Um, And there's even been a moment where I've, I've shared some of the hurts that have happened to me as a kid. And my dad's just like, well, you made that up. That's not true. (laughs) Because there's no insight there, but millennials and Gen Z's. Oh my gosh changing the world. I think the other thing that, and I've said this a lot to people personally, but say it on the podcast. I think the thing that we have to understand with boomers and with parents, our parents and the generation before that is that mental health meant going to a facility, getting Mm -hmm. electric shock therapy, getting some kind of treatment that was Mm life-threatening. And you really only did that if you were hysterical, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you were psychotic or like you really had these emotional breakdowns. It was not a positive, let's talk about our feelings and look at how I interact with the world. It was basically a death sentence. And so yeah. of course they're going to look at us and when we want to talk about our feelings and things that come up and they're going to be like, you're crazy. Absolutely. Well, because it's scary for them. And they were raised by people who grew up in the depression or who were, you know, in the depression. So for their parents, our grandparents, there wasn't room to talk about. They were just trying to survive, let alone thrive and talk about feelings and connection. Like that opportunity wasn't there. Um, And that's not to say I don't want to generalize by any means that all boomers are reacting this way. I think that there are a lot of people one of my favorite clients was like a 77 year old woman. I loved her so much. Um, but, but there's a lot of people out there that want to create change and see things differently. But I do think that, have y'all ever heard of Dr. Becky Kennedy? She does. She has a podcast called good inside. And she also wrote a book called good inside. 
where she takes this approach of like, we need to know how we reacted to our parents parenting us so that we can be better parents for our kids. Mm. It's fantastic. It's a great parenting book. It takes a lot. It's it's more about how do you parent because of who you are instead of you should parent your kids this way. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And that kind of, it falls in line with a lot of what we're talking about. If anyone wants to check her out. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll definitely check that out. That sounds really interesting. Um, I'm curious, too, speaking of, like, generations and attachment styles, like, one complaint I hear a lot from um, people who work with the younger generations um, are the their inability to stick with things right Mm -hmm. like and we've talked about this quite a bit on this podcast we've talked about the benefit of that you know the power in that the power of them saying like I'm done with this and not being treated this way and I'm gonna leave um Mm -hmm. versus uh, and then the negative of that which is that like maybe they don't get to fully like some things suck like in the beginning and you know when you don't really have the (laughs) skills to give it a chance and like hang in there you might miss some benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the meantime, like structures have a really hard time forming because it's like the workers and the people that they need are always coming in and out, in and out, in and out. So Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like it just came to me, we're talking about attachment styles. Do you think any of that has anything to do with like attachment styles? Because it kind of has to do with this like coming and going and committing to things and showing up for things. Or do you think it, or do you think it is actually like secure in some way where the next generation like knows that what do you what do you think is like if you could give an attachment style to the next generation what do you think you would say i know it's i know it's a huge generalization but everybody's secure i think you have to be pretty secure right to be able to say like I can stick up for myself and my needs and not be worried about how someone perceives me or whether or not they're going to like ditch me. Mm-hmm. And if they do, then this person's not the best employer for me right. that they don't really have our, my best interest at heart. And I think it's pretty interesting now seeing a shift in the way that younger millennials and Gen Z are approaching their office space and their workspaces and that they, there's a lot, they're, asking for more balance and Mm -hmm. it's not the nine to five five days a week kind of environment any longer that we can be more flexible with that and I think they're demanding a bigger balance in life and you can only do that if you feel secure I would never ask my boss for that (laughs) I mean I think that (laughs) I agree with you I think it's bold and I think it's also a lot of millennials are aware of the lie that we've been told, which is mm-hmm. you work really hard, yeah. you work really hard your whole life. And then when you can retire, you can get to do what you want to do. But the reality is you can't because you're too old or too sick or you don't have the money still. Or you're in debt. You or you're in debt, right? <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> I think there's a lot of shifts, but that is a, a definite interesting perspective I like that perspective a lot I think also building off of that is like or maybe just concisely said like they know their worth they understand that Mm -hmm. they are the important ones and that Mm -hmm. it's like the um that movie um 
what was it? Is it like a bug's life or is it ants? I can't remember. Ants. I think it's a, is it no, ants? It's ants. Okay. Yeah. So like the villain in the movie is like the grasshopper and he's like talking. There's just a scene in that movie where it's like he's the grasshopper is basically talking about how they have to keep ants like really busy and not understanding the power that they have because if they were to understand the power that they had they could even though they're these tiny bitty things they could come together and take over everything they would have so much power because there's so many of them and it's i always go back to that scene in that movie funny enough because i think it's such a perfect metaphor and parallel for i think what we're all going through right now is we're realizing the power that our voices have, the power that uh, we have when we all come together on one thing. I was actually thinking about that today with TikTok. I'm like, hmm, why are trends such a thing on TikTok? Why does everybody have to do something on TikTok? And then I was like, oh, because it's, it's the feeling of when we do this together, we make this big. We decide mm-hmm. what becomes big. Connection. We decide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that is the thing about the next generations is they understand that. They understand that uh, if I'm the one who has the power in my hands because I'm the one who's going to give someone my time and you need my mm-hmm. time to work. Whereas mm-hmm. like we, we've said in the past, it's like, oh God, please give me a job. Like, please allow me to survive. <laughs> like, please, you know, so... And that is security, right? It's like knowing your worth. Knowing it's real. It's a pretty good thing to come into a relationship and know your worth, probably. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and so. it's probably frustrating for a lot of employers because they're not used to that. I mean, understandably so. That's yeah. this is a whole brand new generation coming into the workforce, um, and I think it can be mutually beneficial. It's you know we both need each other. It's just, I think it takes a lot of work and and people becoming a little more open-minded and a little more insightful to understand how that dynamic can work. Um, But it is, it's kind of fun to watch. I, you know, I always joke around that like um, boomers are like, well, you don't go to therapy unless it's like you're having a mental breakdown and you're hysterical or psychotic. And then Gen X is like, well, you only go if you get like a divorce, like then maybe it's acceptable. <laughs> um, and then and millennials are like, well, we're all anxious. So we're going to go. Yeah. And then, <laughs> I mean, I was saying today, someone was talking about the seventies and they're like, like people, everybody did drugs. And I was like, I know. And we're all just like white knuckling. We're all just like. <laughs> Sober. Oh, you think people aren't doing drugs right now? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I know people are doing drugs, but I, I feel like we're all just here existing together. There is this big movement to be sober. There's this mm-hmm. big movement mm-hmm. to be like more mentally uh, well. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I mean, we gotta, we've gotta figure out our mental status because this reality is really tricky business if you're just gonna white knuckle it. Yeah. Do you know what I literally just saw before, like right before I got on here? I don't know if you guys saw this today. Mm. Ted Lasso was at the White House, okay, talking about Wait. mental health. He was talking about go- the importance of going to therapy. So Jason Sudeikis, who plays okay. Ted Lasso, I was- but I think <laughs> he was there, like, In no, character? it was. A- Actually, no, it was just the cast. The whole cast came and Jason Sudeikis was speaking for the cast at the White Mm -hmm. House press briefing. And he was literally saying, we're all really struggling. We all need to be okay with therapy. We need to be Mm -hmm. okay with like, you know, diving into this because 
it's it's killing us like it's killing people mm-hmm. and i just was like what world am i living i love it it was just yeah. it, one of those moments where you're just like so much is happening like what is happening um but like you said it's fun to watch like that stuff yeah. is fun to watch it's fun to see Jim. how go ahead I was just going to say, Gen Z comes into my office and they're like, oh, nothing's really wrong yet, but I just want to figure out why I do what I do. And I'm like, oh, God, this is glorious. The world's going to change. Yes. (laughs) I might be biased because I'm clearly just seeing the people who are interested in change, but it's pretty fun to watch and like think about. So I I have a question. Going back to attachment styles, if I am an anxious avoidant, hypothetically, um, maybe, maybe, and I've never been more related. I've never felt more related to an attachment style. Anyway, um, and I am trying to be more of a secure attachment style. How would one go about doing these things? Okay, so that's a good question. It kind of gets into why I do attachment-based EMDR. So I think there's two two pieces to this. One is that we can be cognitively aware of the things that we do that are hurting us, right? I am thinking this, therefore I react this way in this relationship. So if I can just change my thoughts, I'm going to react differently. Works great if you find that awareness first. But sometimes it's just so deeply embedded within our limbic system, that feeling of this is my answer to pain. This is how I deal with pain. This is how I see myself. This is the negative belief I have about myself. Mm. that's when you can bring in attachment style EMDR. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, But it was originally developed for people with severe PTSD from like war or car accidents or things like that. But it's been shifting a little bit towards let's find out what memory you had the first time you felt I'm not good enough Mm. and let's retrain your brain to realize that that's a lie. It's been telling you a lie your whole life. You actually are good enough. So I don't know if that came out clear enough. But oh, it did. It did. Yeah, it did. I'm just processing what you said. Yeah. It's a reprocessing so tool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, logically, your wise mind is like, yes, I need to change the way that I react to these things. But constantly running in the background is this belief of I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. So even though you've been through cognitive behavioral therapy and you know I need to substitute this thought with this thought and this action with this action, Mm -hmm. your knee jerk is still going to go back to that negative belief and how you react to I'm not good enough. Hmm. So EMDR will take you back to a, a childhood memory, usually before the age of 10. Some of these things are very innocuous. Like you could be a four-year-old walk into the kitchen with a painting in your hand and say, look at my painting, mom. And mom's making Thanksgiving dinner. She's like, I can't right now, honey. I'll look later. And your brain's like, "Mm, see, you're not good enough. You're just not worthy. And so then every other experience in life is colored through that lens. And so what EMDR does is just taking that first experience and some subsequent experiences after that and retraining your brain like that's not true it actually creates that empathy for your parent a little bit and compassion for your parent a little bit of like you know mom was making thanksgiving dinner it actually had nothing to do with me 
Yeah. I mean, I I've done this. I've been working with someone for about three years and we've been doing this and Mm -hmm. I had this thought in my head that I was stupid. I'm not intelligent. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything smart to say. And I went back to this part memory of me putting a bagel in the VCR and my mom saying, what the fuck is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. You need to think before you do things or like basically telling me without telling me that I'm stupid. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I went back to that memory, I was like, yeah, I would be pretty upset if my kid did that too. And like, also we didn't have a lot of money to buy a new VCR. Right. So I'm sure she was pretty upset and didn't <laughs> actually mean that I'm an idiot. What she right. meant was don't put the damn bagel in the VCR. Why would you do this? <laughs> right. What's going through your head? Because it might have been exactly. a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's the thing. And I think I told y'all this on the phone when we first met that like we're gonna fuck up our kids. Yes. 100% hands down, we're gonna mess them up. Um, you know, mine's eight, so it's definitely already happened. Like she has got, she's going to be in therapy one day with a core memory of like that. Um, but that's where the repair comes in. When we can say, when she goes to therapy and says to a therapist, my mom did blah, 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 but she can then come know that she can come talk to me about that. And I can listen to her and hear her and say like, man, I had no idea that that affected you like that. I'm so sorry. This That is so interesting that you bring that up. So my oldest is 18 and I am 39. So I had him very young. So I have Mm -hmm. made a lot of mistakes with that one. (laughs) God bless him. Little trooper. But the other day, probably about two weeks ago, I was, um, we were joke, him and I were joking around with each other and I said to him like three times, how was your day? And he didn't hear me because he had his AirPods in. And finally I go, I'll give you a thousand dollars if you could tell me the question I just asked you. And he couldn't. And I was like, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> and then he, I, I, we laughed and I said, no, I, you know, how was your day? And he started to tell me. And I was like, I don't know about your day, like joking around. I look mm-hmm. over and he's crying. Oh God. And I went, what just happened? Mm-hmm. And he's like, nothing, I'm fine. And I said, you're clearly not fine. What just happened? And he's like, mm-hmm. I'm fine. And he laughed and he's like, my eyes are sweating. I said, your eyes aren't sweating, but that's called crying. What's going on? And he's like, I just had a bad day. And I don't know why, like that just hit me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And I said, was it me yelling? Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. And I said, do you feel like that every time I yell, whether I'm joking or serious? And he said, mm-hmm. yeah. And I said, I am so, so sorry that I do that to you when I yell. I will really try to change the way my tone is. But also how beautiful is it that he feels safe enough to tell you when you've hurt him? Oh, like, I didn't that is amazing. That. I'm going to cry thinking about, about it. I'm going <laughs> to cry thinking about that because I didn't even, I looked at it as like, I'm a piece of shit and I no. have made my 18 year old cry when I was joking around with him. Yeah. No, but he felt safe telling you that he's secure because he knows that you're not going to belittle him or stonewall him or yell at him more just because he shared something you did that made him uncomfortable. Oh, that makes that's pretty cool. That makes the story. Honestly, (laughs) I was telling the story of like what a piece of shit I am. 
So that makes me feel really good that like, we're looking at yeah. it from that perspective. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, I love a strengths perspective. Like That's let's good. not focus on the things that we do wrong. Um, <laughs> we can get yeah, really and, mired down in that. Yeah. And that is like proof of generational healing and like changing, mm-hmm. like healing the generational oh, yeah, trauma, right? Cause Ambie like would, did you feel, I'm just curious, like, did you feel safe when you were growing up to share, like, if you're... Oh, I love my mom, I want to say, because I know she listens to the podcast. But no, I did not. I still don't. <laughs> I still don't. Like, if mm-hmm. I were to cry to my mom, her response is going to be some form of gaslighting. You're being mm-hmm. sensitive, you're being ridiculous, are you starting your period, all of those things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not even, we don't have that relationship anymore, because it's not worth it to me you've adjusted your expectations accordingly 100 percent. yeah 100 yeah but we have to think too that like if we're meant to have life a life lesson right mm-hmm. i think i said this on the phone with y'all too like our parents are like they're planting the seed for that lesson mm-hmm. i mean i'm not trying to justify us hurting our kids by any means but like they're going to like my daughter's going to learn a life lesson from whatever core memory I have put in there that has made her feel some kind of way. And it's going to be a struggle and it's going to be hard for me to watch her react to it sometimes. Um, But if she, and hopefully she will, because she's a therapist kid, but if she (laughs) really practices um, self-awareness and being insightful, then she's going to learn that lesson and be even like bigger and better because of it. Mm, yeah, that's true. I what about people that don't remember their childhood? Oh, oh. <laughs> so I'll preface with this. Um, and to be clear, I do see people who don't have any kind of complex PTSD. Like they're just here for anxiety or problems with work and relationships. And it always ends up with this negative belief, always. Um. And everyone always says, I don't really remember anything before the age of 10. And I think that's because our brains aren't built that way, right? Like we are, our memory, our long-term memory is not built to remember every single detail of our entire lives. And the further away you get from 10, like the less you're going to remember. So I'll preface by saying that that's pretty normal to not remember every single detail. Oh, that's Even the memories... I don't know. Well, hold on. (laughs) So, so like even your memory, your core memory could only be like a five second flash of an event, right? Like, oh, I remember this happening when I was four and it felt this way. Um, So yeah, it's, we're not going to hold on to everything. Like it's, you know, photographic memory kind of deal. Our brains aren't built that way, but there's also this idea of memory repression, which may be something that, Freud actually got right. But um, this idea that something is too painful for our cognitive mind, cognitive mind to continue to replay over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So it kind of tucks the movie away, but it keeps the emotions from that movie, that memory, if we were looking at it like it was a movie, it keeps the emotions of that in our limbic system. That's so that our brain knows anytime I feel this way, it means I'm unsafe, like this memory, and I need to react accordingly. Mm. But I don't want to, I don't want to feel this memory all the time. So I'm just going to tuck it away. I'm going to not worry about it right now. I'm not going to actually see the memory. 
Mm. Um, and so I think sometimes repressed, repressed memories come out in therapy. Sometimes our memories are completely wonky. Like it's amazing to me, like all three of us and everyone listening right now and watching right now is going to remember this conversation differently. Like nobody has like an accurate recording of what happens in everyday life. So it doesn't really matter what the memory is. It's, it's more about like what your brain thinks the memory is. Interesting. And that's also, Amby, does it? You really (laughs) want to ask the question. Oh, wait, what? Sorry. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. That's also like the most frustrating part about life is like that, that you'll never be able to know or control how other people perceive you or any situation, no matter how you intend it, no matter what. And that's exactly why it goes back to exactly what you're saying about parents and children. No matter what we do, we will Mm. F them up because Mm -hmm. just existing is going to give them information that they're going to perceive a certain way. And we have no control over that. But what we do have control over is like you just perfectly demonstrated is being that safe space where they can come and work that out with us or communicate about it to better understand it, you know, and Mm -hmm. then they can take it to their therapist and understand it even better. But (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's like we've agreed to play that role of being a very significant person in their lives and being a significant person in anyone's lives Mm -hmm. means that you're going to negatively affect them and you're going to positively affect them. You just, you know, don't know those exact ways yet, I guess. Yes. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I was just sitting here thinking like, where did I hear this? Like on the way here and I realized it was y'all's last podcast you were talking about. (laughs) I heard deja vu right now. (laughs) Like someone was just talking about this the other day. It was an hour ago. That's so funny. Um, Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Where you were saying that, because you're right when you, and that's part of like, that's a little bit of avoidance attachment is like oh I have a huge impact on this person and I'm not a good person so I need to back off yeah like that's that's part of that vulnerability in relationships that are super uncomfortable Mm. yeah yep absolutely that is so me um okay one of our uh, watchers listeners on Facebook oh let's call uh, them watchers I like that okay watchers (laughs) sounds a little creepy that's a great show Watchers. The watcher. Okay. So it says, my partner and I have been having daily conversations about his worries about ruining his kids who are now teenagers. Mm -hmm. This episode is going to be extremely helpful and was divinely timed. Oh, yay. That makes me happy. Yeah. Um, And speaking of that, so Heather – how can people work with you? Like, do you only work yeah. with clients in person? Do you do things online as well? Like tell people how they can get in contact yeah. with you and work with you. So I live in Greenville, South Carolina. So if you live in the upstate area of South Carolina, you can come see me in person. Um, I am only licensed in South Carolina right now. So I can only do video with someone in this state. So if you live in Charleston, you want to meet with me, we can do, um, uh, telehealth visits, that's not a problem. Um, look, I'm working towards getting my North Carolina license. It's just so much paperwork, kind of a pain in the ass. But that's like, such a bummer that, that it works that way. Like it does. Well, they're trying to make a counseling compact um, 
they meaning the powers that be in government where any therapist can provide a service to anyone in the country um but they get shot down a lot i mean they've been working on this for years oh that's unfortunate covid changed it It, because there was such a shortage of therapists during covid um or compared to the amount of people needing help that yeah. there were a lot of states that lifted those laws. And so I practiced with people in New Jersey and New York, California, yeah. in Texas, but that all ended like last year. So what are some fingers things, crossed? This is a good question. What are some things that people should be looking for when they seek out therapy? Mm-hmm. Oh, first off, always interview your therapist. I never get, I never get the opportunity. It's like, this is your therapist. She can meet with Uh, you once every three months, if you're lucky and you do a little jig and you say the right thing. That's probably not what you should look for in a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always ask, um, and I always say like every great therapist has a great therapist. So I, when I, you know, found my therapist, I asked for a consultation. I said, can we talk on the phone for 15 minutes before I commit to working with you? And if you're intuitive and you can tell the vibe, then you know, like this person is my person. I would look for someone that's able to meet you consistently at first. So maybe once a week to once every other week Mm -hmm. um, that has the availability to do that in their schedule. So that's why a lot of times I'll tell people I can see you, but not for another four months because I want to be able to see you every week to really get this rolling. Um, And so as people leave, I can put more people on. I would look for someone who has the same spiritual, um, not necessarily spiritual beliefs as you, but is very open-minded. And that's huge in the South. Like I've had a number of clients say like, I don't believe in God. I have a bad experience with church. Can I work with you? Is that safe? Um, so asking that question is always important. Asking um, <clears throat> what their approach is, not necessarily what theory they use, but like, what's your approach? How do you approach your therapeutic relationship with your client? Mine's always like super chill and laid back and, you know, we can kick off our shoes and laugh and make crude jokes for 15 minutes before we get down to stuff, right? So, mm. um, so I think, and it's a lot like dating, honestly. Like you could see three therapists before you find one that feels right. Yeah. Maybe you should be looking for a therapist with a secure attachment style. That's true. That's helpful. (laughs) But again, that's why every good therapist has a therapist, right? Mm Because I would be very ineffective to my clients if I didn't realize why I reacted and do the things the way that I do them. Like I would be constantly in a reactionary mode. Um, I wouldn't be able to keep good boundaries. I, I'm an empath. So I would not, like, I have to put my little shield around me every morning. Um, good job. And have, and knowing that is super important. You might yeah. even ask your therapist, yeah. what do you do for self-care? No, do you I have like a therapist? Question. Do you have mm-hmm. a therapist? Do you do self-care? You know, I had a mm-hmm. therapist tell me one time. I told her why I was coming to therapy and she went, Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a lot. Oof, that's a lot. And I thought, if you're overwhelmed with my problems, <laughs> this is not the person for me because not the right relationship. I want you to be overwhelmed with my shit. Well, here's the thing that's important is that she or he knew their limits, 
so that they could say like, you know what, we're not going to be a good fit. Let me refer you to someone else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's because some people, she just, she told me to write a book. (laughs) She told you to write a book. Yes. Well, I mean, maybe you could, but first she should probably heal. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. (laughs) You could fill a book with those stories. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Um, Heather, is there anything else that you want to share before we wrap up? Like also, by the way, wait, how can people, if they do live in the state, how can they contact you? Well, they can go to Psychology Today and look up Heather Corley, or they can go to um, a part of a group practice. It's called the Lumen Center, L-U-M-I-N Center. Um, so they can go to thelumencenter.com and ask for me specifically when they fill out their request for therapy and we can get rolling from there. Or you can contact me directly at heather at lumencenter.com. Awesome. Nice. Thank you so, so much for being yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. This is, I think this we is really helpful. Do I? I was thinking, I was like, she'd be such a good therapist I for you. I were in Virginia <laughs> or I was in South Carolina. Either way. We'll do it over the retreat. Like every day we'll have a one hour session. It'll be like speed I'll therapy. I'll just use you during the retreat. No. It'll be fine. It'll no, be you're good. coming to the retreat to relax. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's funny. Speaking of like childhood attachment stuff, I grew up in Lexington and like, well, probably going to really? be doing a whole bunch of things. <laughs> Oh boy. With this inner child exploration. So yeah, it should yeah. be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, can't wait. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm but truly can't too. truly can't wait to be there with you and uh all the other attendees. And um yeah. yeah, thank you just so much for being here and sharing your Thanks. wisdom because I really think this is gonna be really helpful for a lot of our listeners. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And if anyone out there is looking for an EMDR therapist that uses attachment, um, I got trained through the um, personal. Why can't I remember it anymore? Personal Transformation Institute. So if you go to their website, they have um, therapists that are listed um, that do attachment style EMDR specifically. That is super helpful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We will. Yeah, and, Go ahead. And if you can't find one, email me and I'll find one for you. Thank you oh, so much, Heather. Nice of you. Yeah. Thank you for being such a amazing support and obviously someone who's amazing at their job and loves what they do. Um, oh, thanks to y'all. Yeah. I appreciate absolutely. y'all having me. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you all for watching. Thank you all for listening. Um, Make sure you go check out Heather. And until next time, keep on blooming. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would love, love, love it if you would leave a rating and review on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to get in touch for a reading with Ambie, an EFT session with Alexa, or just to say what up, you can email us at innerbloompodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at innerbloompodcast.com.